Andrew Womack Ministries presents this session from the 2014 Phoenix Gospel Truth Seminar. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. All right, we're over in Galatians chapter 3. I'm trying to teach through the book of Galatians, and I've only got two sessions, one this morning, one tonight left. I'm not sure I'll make it all the way, but we're going to get as far as we can. I ended last time with Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. I think I touched on verse 17, but let me go back to Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this is, remember, we were talking about uh, in the first part of this chapter, he just started out blasting them. You foolish Galatians. One translation says, you dear idiots. The message Bible says, you're crazy. And he started talking about, why would anybody want to go back under the law? And he says, don't you remember how you received the Lord? Was it because you deserved it? Was it because you had been living holy? Are you so foolish having started in the spirit? Are you now made perfect in the flesh? And then in verse 10, he began to start saying, don't you understand that the law has a curse associated with it for any person who doesn't keep every last detail. People who profess the law and proclaim that you have to live by these standards don't understand what they're saying because it's not you do the best you can and God will make up the difference. No, you either have to keep the law perfectly or if you break one point, you become guilty of all. James chapter two, verse 10 says that. And so there's a curse. We read that out of Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. And it says, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law. So he made that point and he, and he showed that this isn't the way that it was done even under the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter two, verse four says, the just shall live by faith. So even in the Old Testament, nobody was ever right with God or reconciled unto God by keeping all of the commandments. The only way anybody has ever related to God is through faith. And then he showed that Christ redeemed us from the curse of this Old Testament law being made a curse for us when he hung on the tree. And then he goes back and starts referring to the Abrahamic covenant. Now this is exactly what uh, Creflo was talking about last night that this Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of grace and it was in effect 430 years before the law was given. Genesis 15, six is where this covenant of grace was given. God said, if you can count the stars in the sky, if you can number the grains of sand on the seashore, so shall your seed be. And Genesis 15, six says, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And so that was done then, and it was 430 years later. Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41 says, the day that the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt was 430 years to the day after this covenant was made with Abraham in Genesis 15, six. And so he's referring to this, that God had put this covenant of grace, the blessing of God operating in our lives in effect first. And the very fact that it was the original contract means it was the superior contract. You can't disannul it. That's what he goes on to say right here in the 17th verse. And this I say is that the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ 
The reason this covenant was confirmed in Christ is because the previous verse says the covenant was made to Abraham and his seed, not seeds, plural, not the Jewish nation, but to his seed, singular, which was Christ. And so this covenant was between uh, God, Abraham, and Abraham's seed, which the scripture reveals was Christ. And because of that, it was confirmed before of God in Christ. The law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Man, this, this is really powerful. You know, in, in a sense, if you were a, uh, a lawyer or something, you might understand this better. But once a contract is made, you know, it, it has the um, authority over it because it was the original contract. It's already been validated. And once it's validated, you can't nullify it. And this is the point that he's making right here. In verse 16 or 18, he says, for if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. There weren't any stipulations. He just says, I'm going to do this for you. And Abraham believed God. And because he believed faith, the power of God, the blessing of God began to operate in Abraham's life. In verse 19, he says, wherefore then serveth the law. If you follow the logic, he has so conclusively proven that the law has a curse with it and you can't live under the law. Jesus redeemed us from this curse of the law so that we could operate under the Abrahamic blessing instead of the curses of the Old Testament law. And if you follow his logic, then you should come to this place. Well, then why the law? Why did God even give the law if there was already this covenant where the favor of God was coming by faith? It says right here, wherefore then serveth the law. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made until the time of Christ, until the seed, uh, Galatians 3.16 says Christ was the seed. And until Christ came, the law was added because of transgressions. You know, this book that I advertise today on the true nature of God goes into a long detail on this based on uh, Romans 5.13. I hadn't got time to go into all of that, but let me just say that in a nutshell, the law was given because people were not understanding how deadly their sins were because God wasn't punishing it because there wasn't retribution on people. People were just going out and living in sin. And even though God wasn't punishing sin, sin still has consequences. It's what I call, this is just my way of describing it, but it's, there is a vertical effect of sin and a horizontal effect of sin. The vertical effect of sin is the wrath and the punishment of God. When we sin, God was worthy of punishing us and bringing his judgment upon us, but he didn't do it. Romans chapter five, verse 13 says, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Until the time of the law, God did not punish sin. There's a couple of exceptions. I'm, if I get off on this, I'm gonna uh, get off track. So anyway, get the book. <laughs> I'm not gonna take time to explain it. But as a whole, God did not deal with people according to their sin. Abraham lived in a sexual abomination according to Leviticus chapter 18. He married a half-sister and Leviticus 18 says, if you do this, you have to be cut off that word cut off is talking about that you have to be killed. Exodus chapter 31, verse 14, I believe it is. 
Ryan, have you got that? Exodus 31, 14. It says, ye shall keep the Sabbath therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. And if you put that together with 2 Chronicles chapter 31, I believe it is, verse 21. Have you got that one, Ryan? The scripture man, as Creflo referred to him. It says, and in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, let's see, that's not the right one, is it? Where is that verse? You followed me instead of, you should have known what I wanted. Second Chronicles, <laughs> Second Chronicles 32, 21. Let's try that instead of 31. It says, and the Lord sent an angel which cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and captains of the camp of the king of Assyria. And if you put this together with 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, you'll find out that when it says he cut off, he killed 186,000 men. So anyway, my point is that when it talks about being cut off, it's talking about being put to death. And Leviticus 18 says, if you marry a half-sister... It's an abomination in the sight of God. Whoever does so must be cut off from among his people. And if you don't kill them, you can be killed for not enforcing the law. So Abraham, if the law had been in effect, he would have been killed because he was living in a sexual abomination. But the law hadn't been given and God wasn't imputing his sins unto him. And then Isaac comes along and Isaac does some things that would have gotten him killed. Jacob comes along and marries two sisters while the first sister is still married to him, which Leviticus 18 says, if you do that, you must be put to death. And not only did this guy live, but he wrestled with God, with an angel of God and prevailed and his name was changed to Israel. And so anyway, here's people before the law who were prospering and God's favor was operating in them. But when the law came, God started holding people's sins against them. And it says over here in Galatians that it was added because of transgressions. Prior to the law, God wasn't enforcing this vertical effect of sin, but there still was consequences to sin. There's what I call that horizontal effect. In Romans chapter six, verse 16, says, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Even though God wasn't bringing his punishment upon people for sin, sin was destroying the human race. People were being destroyed. There are consequences to sin. You know, we've been sitting here talking about how God loves us in, in spite of our sin. You can't make God love you more by being holy. You can't make God love you less by being unholy. Some people take that as, well, man, let's just go sin. Creflo dealt with that last night. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. But beyond just the fact that your heart has changed and you don't want to live in sin... If you go live in sin, you're just plain stupid because you give Satan an inroad into your life. You're just giving him free access to you. That's just stupid. But God loves you, stupid, is the point I'm trying to get across. But just because God loves us, do I want to go out and live in sin? Did you know I could go commit adultery 
and God would still love me. I know that some people that just curls your hair to hear somebody say that, but it's true. The Bible says in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. God has called me, God has gifted me, and did you know if I lived in sin, God would not take his blessing and his anointing away from me. But I would be stupid to go live in sin. Because even though God may not reject me, people would reject me, and rightly so. People would think, well, man, it's not working for you. Why in the world should I listen to what you're saying? It's not gonna, if it doesn't work for you, it won't work for me. I would cause all kinds of problems. I'd hurt Jamie. It would cause, it would affect my kids. It would affect the people who know me. It would, it would do tremendous damage. You know, I could name names right now, but there was a minister who probably was one of the most, uh, I don't know what the right word for it is, but he had more television coverage than anybody in the world at the time. This has been about 15, 20 years ago. And uh, he was reaching billions and billions of people. And it, still, I don't know if anybody's ever equaled his television coverage. At the time, he was the number one guy. And he went out and had a relationship with a prostitute and did things. And you know what? God still loves him. He's back on television and there's people that still get blessed by him. But instead of having the largest ministry in the history of the world, he's on two or three little stations. He used to have thousands of people in a Bible college. Now he has dozens of people. It affected him. But you know what? God still loves him. God will still use him. There's a lot of people that can't, I don't believe God would use a dirty vessel. God hadn't got any other kind of vessel to use. <laughs> We're just all in varying degrees of dirtiness. See, when you start being a legalist and saying, God won't bless you if you've got this, what you have to do is start categorizing sins and saying, well, some sins are acceptable. Pride and failure to be who you should be and getting discouraged and critical and doing things, you know, God will forgive that. But then there's the cardinal sins, adultery, lying, stealing. That Man, God won't tolerate those. Again, the Bible says, James 2.10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. God doesn't look at sin the way that legalists do. If you miss it in the most minute detail, you've missed the whole thing. So sin, even though God wasn't judging it, sin was destroying people. It hardens your heart. Hebrews chapter three talks about the deceitfulness of sin will harden your heart. It doesn't change God's heart towards you, but it'll change your heart towards God. And so even though God wasn't judging sin, sin was having consequences. It was destroying the human race. And many of you have heard me say this before, but if God hadn't have done something to restrain the amount of sin, there wouldn't have been a virgin left on the earth for Jesus to have been born through. His, his purpose and kingdom could not have come to pass. So God gave the law, which the law did a number of things. It made sin come alive, but it, you know, here's an example of this. I was raised as a legalist. I was raised strict, strict, strict. I mentioned that we didn't even go do mixed bathing. You couldn't go swimming where a girl was present. You couldn't dance. You couldn't, 
you know, couldn't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. You couldn't do anything, amen. I was just really raised strict. And because of it, I've never used a word of profanity in my life. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I have been Mr. Holy compared to most people. <laughs> but did you know that sin actually probably dominated me and made me more condemned than many of you who went out and smoked and drank and ran around and slept around and did things? Most of you weren't as guilt-ridden as I was. And I know that that's subjective and some of you think, well, that's probably not true. I'm telling you, I just lived in a constant state of fear that I was, uh, you know, not acceptable with God and I was doing everything I could to try and earn and please God. And I just lived a life of condemnation. That's where my inferiority came from. I just was so aware of my sin that it just hindered me. It kept me from committing as much sin, but sin was alive on the inside of me through the, through the uh, law. I don't know if I can explain that properly, but the law actually, the fear of punishment may keep people from doing something, but they will lust for the very thing that you've commanded them that they shouldn't do. And so God gave the law to restrain the amount of sin. For instance, it says, Jesus said that in the last days, it will just begin to approach to the way that it was in the days of Noah. And the days of Noah, that was 1,656 years after the fall of Adam. And here we are over 6,000 years after the fall of Adam, and it's just now beginning to get the way that it was in the days of Noah. So man, something happened that changed things. And the law, the introduction of the law put fear of punishment in people. It restrained the amount of sin, but the sin that they had committed destroyed them. It killed them. And so here's the reason that God gave the law. It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come. Talking about Jesus. This very verse makes it clear that the law wasn't ever intended to be permanent. It wasn't a different covenant. It was an add-on to the covenant of grace and God gave the law to restrain the amount of sin so that he would be able to bring his Messiah into the earth. It was only until the seed should come and now that the seed has come, we are not under that law anymore. Amen. And so let's read this again in verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law. It was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. This is talking about Moses. Moses was the mediator. If you put up there the uh, amplified translation, it even calls, it even mentions Moses in this verse as being the mediator between the two. So it says, what was then the purpose of the law? It was added later on after the promise to disclose and expose to man their guilt because of transgressions and to make man more conscious of the sinfulness of sin. And it was intended to be in effect until the seed, the descendant, the heirs should come to whom and concerning whom the promise had been made and it, the law was arranged and ordained and appointed through the instrumentality of angels 
and was given by the hand in the person of a go-between Moses, an intermediary person between God and man. And so this is talking about that the law was witnessed by angels and it was ordained in the hands of a mediator and it calls Moses the mediator. And look at this in verse 20. It says, now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. You know, this is a little wordy and confusing in the uh, King James. Well, what this is talking about, a mediator is a person who settles a dispute between two different parties who are upset with each other. In Moses' case, God was one party, mankind was the other party, and Moses was the mediator, the go-between, the person who was a, uh, rec uh, reconciling them to each other. In the new covenant, and this is gonna be made clear here in just a minute, it's different because the covenant was established between God and Abraham's seed, which verse 16 says was Christ. So, uh, Creflo was talking about this last night, that God, the reason the old covenant law couldn't work is because we couldn't live up to it. It was our fault. And so God, to eliminate us from this deal, made the covenant between him and the seed, which was Jesus. The new covenant is based on Jesus and not based on you. And Jesus is gonna be faithful. Jesus is never gonna fail. And so now there is, God is one. But Jesus was unique in the fact that he was a God man. He was God and man at the same time. So he represented the human race and God made a covenant with Jesus. And when you put faith in Jesus and enter into this new covenant, you are partaking of what Jesus deserves. It's not based on you. The covenant isn't really between you and God. It's between you, it's between God and Jesus and you become a joint heir with Jesus. You get in on everything he deserves. Hallelujah. So when you come before God and you're saying, oh God, I'm so unworthy. Oh God, how could you ever use me? You think that the covenant's with you. You think that you have to perform. So you haven't entered into this new covenant. The new covenant is between God and Jesus and Jesus is holy. He deserves it. I had a man come up to me this morning and he says, I had problems with his shoulders and I think problems with his hearing. And he says, I was just living with it because I thought I didn't deserve it. He said, after that message last night, I think I deserve it. I want you to pray for me. <laughs> and you know what? In just his physical self, he probably doesn't deserve it based on his performance, but because he is a joint heir with Christ because of the new covenant, you deserve what Jesus deserves. Amen. Man, that's awesome. And so if you're feeling unworthy and disqualified, it's because you haven't put faith in this new covenant. You haven't fully understood it. You still think that God is dealing with you, but God, the covenant is made between God and the seed, which is Christ. In verse 21, it says, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, then verily righteousness should have been by the law. In other words, this is saying, there's a couple of things right here. It says that uh, if there had been a law given which could have given life, this, the way that it's stated shows you that the law doesn't give life. It is not life giving, it's life taking. 
Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's a ministration of death, verse 7. It's a ministration of condemnation, verse 9. The law strengthens sin, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The law didn't give you life. If there had been a law, if, if God had been able to just say, all right, do this, this, and this, and you get saved and you're saved by doing this, if he could have done that, he would have done it. But he couldn't because none of us can live up to God's standard of holiness. So the law wasn't given to set you free from sin or to bring you into relationship with God. It was given to show you how far short of that relationship you were so that you would quit trying to save yourself and you would depend upon God. You'd look to God for a savior. And then in verse 22, it says, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. God had, in a sense, put everybody in the same prison. He's locked us all up. The law shuts you up. You know, we just passed the new year and there's people that say, well, man, I'm gonna make a new year's resolution and I'm not gonna beat my wife anymore and I'm not gonna do dope anymore and I'm, I'm gonna do this. But you know what? Every time self-effort tries to change yourself and you think that this is gonna make me a better person and surely I'll be acceptable to God now. There's a law that just condemned you. It's like if you started going this direction, there was a law that showed you that you still missed it and come short. You may be better than you were before, but you still aren't perfect. And so here's the law and it just builds up a wall. So you say, all right, I'll head this direction. And here's a law condemning you and showing you that you're still falling short. So you say, I'm gonna go this direction. Here's the law. And it just shuts you up so that the only way you had to look was up. Oh God, have mercy on me. You know, I heard a joke about a man that went to heaven and this guy got to heaven and the, and the, the angel came to him and says, all right, we got to give you a quiz to see if you, uh, you know, can qualify to come into heaven. You got to get a hundred points on this quiz. The guy thought, no problem, man, I've lived for God my whole life. I can do this. So the angel started and says, all right, did you go to church? And he said, I went to church every time the doors were open and he showed him this pen, attendance pen. <laughs> And he says, man, I got all of these awards for church attendance. And the angel says, that's worth one half of a point. He said, one half of a point. And he says, were you faithful to your wife? And he says, I never cheated on my wife. I never even lusted. Man, I just was faithful, faithful, faithful. And he says, that's worth one point. And anyway, after four or five questions, this guy had three points. And finally, he says, man, if that's the way you're grading, God have mercy on me. And he says, come right on in, amen. <laughs> See, that was the purpose of the law. The people who thought, man, I'm really good. And God, I know you're gonna accept me. He says, all right, let me give you a little test. And here's the law. And it just constantly showed you, you'll never make it. You know, when my sons were little, I was teaching my uh, youngest son how to work on a bicycle and I had a three-speed bicycle and it had, you know, these gears on the back wheel and I had to change the tires. So anyway, I took the chain off and I was doing all of this and he was, I forget, four years old and he wanted to put it back together. And I said, Peter, you can't put it back together. I said, you're just four years old. I said, you watch me and learn. I was gonna teach him, but no, I can do it. I can do it. He just, you know. So finally I said, all right, do it. 
And I knew he was going to fail. I knew he couldn't do it. It's impossible. He didn't have the ability, but he thought he did. And so I had to let him realize he couldn't do it. And I let him do it and he failed. And when he failed, then I came back and showed him, here's how you do it. In a sense, see, that's what the law does. People were thinking, God, I don't need you. I'm a good person. I know you're going to accept me. And so God gave the law. He added it to that covenant of grace because of sin destroying the human race. But it was an add-on. It was a temporary thing until the seed should come. And now that the seed has come, he's installed this new covenant that Creflo was talking about last night. And praise God, we are redeemed from the curse of the law and from trying to keep all of these principles. Hallelujah. In verse uh, 23, it says, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that you might be uh, justified by faith. But after that faith is come, and this is talking about faith in Christ, in what he paid for us, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. It makes it very clear that the law was a schoolmaster and now it says we are no longer under the schoolmaster and yet people will fight you for the right to be under the law. Like I said before, most people just don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. But man, this is amazing. We are no longer under this schoolmaster. The schoolmaster shut us up. It drove us to God out of a sense of guilt. But now that love has come, we should be drawn to God by his love as Creflo was sharing last night. That was awesome. Man, we don't have to sit here and do what's right because of fear of punishment, because we have God living on the inside of us and because of the love of God, we do what's right because of the Holy Spirit has changed your want to. I've actually witnessed to people before who said, but man, I'm a drunk or I'm a doper or I have this problem and I just don't think I can break it. And you know, I've actually told them, I said, well, just believe, receive this salvation and you can do whatever you want to do. In a sense, I'm setting them up because when you get born again, God changes your want to. Amen. He'll change your heart. You don't want to do those things anymore. Matter of fact, 1 John chapter 3, uh, verse 3 says, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he's pure. The first two verses talk about seeing Jesus as he is and being made like him. And every man, it didn't say some people, but every person who has truly been born again has a desire to live for God and to purify himself. God changes your heart. If your heart hasn't been changed, if you're listening to Creflo and me and thinking, man, this is awesome. Let's go live in sin. These guys are giving me a license to sin. You ought to get born again. Your heart was never changed. Amen. Man, he changes your heart. And after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster for we are all children of God by faith in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
You know, this is a little hard to wrap your head around. What does it mean there isn't even uh, male or female? That's because we deal with each other based on our physical person, based on our outward things. But God looks at you in Christ. You are in Christ. And in Christ, he sees you as Christ. That's what the next verse says. It says, and if you be Christ, apostrophe S, possessive, then are you Abraham's seed. Verse 16 says that that seed was Christ. Then are you Abraham's seed. Then are you Christ and heirs according to the promise. This doesn't mean that I in my physical body am Christ, that I in my mind am Christ, but in my born again spirit, I have the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ living on the inside of me. John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit and God looks at you in the spirit. He deals with you based on the spirit. And when he looks at you in the spirit, he doesn't see you as a male or a female, as a Jew or a Gentile. He sees Christ. You have the same standing with God that Jesus has. When you pray in the name of Jesus, he answers your prayers just like he would answer the prayers of Jesus because you have the spirit of Christ sent into your heart. And if anybody says, I just can't believe I've got the spirit of Christ. Well, Romans 8 and 9 says, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you don't have the spirit of Christ, you hadn't been born again. When you get born again, you change in your spirit. This is what my book about spirit, soul, and body is all about. This would be a great place right now to just teach on spirit, soul, and body, who you are in Christ and how your spirit has been changed because most people don't understand this. They only know themselves as a physical, natural person and they think that that's the way that God sees them. But God, if you are in Christ, there isn't Jew or Gentile, male or female. God isn't relating to you based on your physical person. He's relating to you based on who you are in the spirit. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new and God sees you that way. And if you're gonna worship him, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. It, you shouldn't, it's not just a superior way to do it. It's a better way to do it. It's the only way to do it is to relate to God by who you are in your spirit. Man, this is awesome. This is awesome. Praise God. Look in chapter four. Remember that this is not a new chapter in the way God wrote it. We just put these verses and chapter divisions in here for reference. But he says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. You know, Creflo dealt with this yesterday morning, so I'm gonna skip through some of these things trying to move on. He's already covered this, but man, this is powerful and you need to put it in the context. It's exactly as Creflo was saying yesterday. This is not talking about immature Christians versus mature Christians. It's talking about people who are under the law versus people who are living in the new covenant. And this is what this is talking about. In verse two, he says, but you are under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. This is talking about you were living under the law and you were under this sense of you can't do this and that. Now, Paul was writing at a time that every person who was having relationship with God in the Jewish nation had been under the law. 
And then Jesus came and there was a transition period of time. We live in a different age. We weren't ever intended to be under the law. When we get born again, you just should enter right into the new covenant. But these people had lived under the old covenant and were transitioning into the new covenant. And you'll see some of these things reflected in what he's saying. In verse four, it says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. That happened during Paul's lifetime. He had started out under the law, but he had to change from that to this new covenant of grace. You and I, Christ came 2,000 years ago. And when you got born again, you should have never been under the law. You should have never even tried to have a relationship with God by the law. So there is a little difference here between what he's saying. In verse five, he came to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You know, again, we could spend a lot of time on this, but that word Abba here is comparable to our term daddy. It's talking about an intimacy with God. And very few Christians have this kind of intimacy with God because they have been shown God through the Old Testament law, through the harshness, through the severity. They don't know His grace and mercy, but God is passionate about us. Boy, God loves you. You can run and jump in His lap and say, Daddy. Some people just, "Ah, I can't believe that. You know, it's like if I was to go to your house and if your children came in, and say they're small children and they come in and they fall on the floor and go to bowing and oh dad, I know that I don't deserve it. I know I didn't make my bed. I know I haven't been doing everything right, but I'm hungry. Would you please give me something to eat? Pretty please. And you start begging. If your children treated you that way, I would tell you that you have something wrong in your relationship with your kids. Even though you are the parent, you are the one that's in authority, they are submitted to you. Children run and just jump in your lap and the parent loves it. That's the kind of relationship. I'm not pulling God down any at all. He is almighty God. But because of what Jesus has done, he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. And you should be able to run to God and, and enjoy his presence the way that a child would their their parent. And most Christians don't experience that because the law, again, represents God as this austere, harsh, hateful person. And that is not a true representation of God. Man, those are awesome, awesome statements right there. In verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Again, the servant is people who are living, Christians who are living under the law are relating to God as servants. People who are living under grace relate to him as father, Abba, father, daddy. There is a closeness, an intimacy that the fear of punishment has been taken away because they aren't under this law anymore. And you become an heir of God. In Romans chapter eight, verse 17, it says, and if heirs, we are joint heirs with Christ. Man, that's powerful. 
Anyway, there's a lot of good things could be said about that. In verse eight, how be it then when we knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now after that you have known God or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereby, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. This is talking about the law. And this is a theme that he's repeated many times here in the book of uh, Galatians. He says, why are you turning back to this bondage? You've started in the freedom and the liberty of this new covenant. In verse 10, he says, you observe days such as the Sabbath day. You know, we read that verse earlier and it says, if anybody breaks the Sabbath, he has to be cut off, put to death, there are people sitting right here in this auditorium that say, I believe we still have to keep the Sabbath. Well, according to Exodus chapter 31, verse 14, if you break the Sabbath, you have to be put to death. Do you really want to take that position? <laughs> oh, I keep the Sabbath. First of all, the Sabbath isn't Sunday. The Sabbath is sundown Friday until sundown Saturday. Most of you don't keep the Sabbath. Did you know that during the days of John the Baptist, the Essens, the people that he grew up with that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls that lived around the Dead Sea there and we found these Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1950s. Did you know that those people literally uh, refused to have a bowel movement on the Sabbath day because it was work? Creflo was making reference to some of this. The scripture, did you know that the scripture says that when you go to relieve yourself, it told you how to dig a hole and how to cover and it. And there's rules about how you go to the bathroom. And if you didn't do it right, did you know you broke the Sabbath? I know some of you think we're making this stuff up, but you couldn't make this up. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's in there. And so he says, you observe days. You know, one of the things he's talking about is the Sabbath. And there are scriptures that says the Sabbath should be observed forever, just as it's talking about circumcision. I'll talk about that probably this evening when I get into chapter five and stuff. And it had to be a covenant that was observed forever, but that covenant was disannulled. You know, I just read over here in the third chapter that no covenant can disannul it. Well, in uh, Hebrews chapter seven, I forget which verse, verse 10 or 11 along there, it says that now there is verily a disannulling of this Old Testament law. It has been, you know, the word annul is a strong word. If you annul a marriage, it means you act as if it's never happened. The word disannul is just a strengthened form of that and it means it just totally is obliterated. It doesn't even exist. There is a disannulling of that previous commandment because of the weakness and the unprofitableness thereof. And so this covenant about the Sabbath is now fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews chapter four talks about the Sabbath rest. Colossians chapter two, verses 16 and 17. I wish I could teach on this. This is great, but I'm gonna pass over it. You can go get other uh, materials, but Colossians 2, six, 16 and 17 says that the, uh, what you eat, what you drink, the new moon, the Sabbath days. There's five things listed in verse 16. Verse 17 says they are all shadows 
of things that are to come. Not the very image. The very image of those things is Christ. The Sabbath was a picture of a relationship with God that is now available to us in the New Testament. And now that the picture, the reality is here in Christ, you do not observe the picture anymore. The Sabbath is not in force today. The Sabbath is not for us today. You could say it this way, that the Sabbath is for us, but this, what it really pictured, the reality, the relationship with God is for us today, but we no longer have to observe the formalities and the pictures. You know, before something becomes real, a shadow can be a good example. Man, I'm trying to hurry through this, but it's hard to hurry through these things. Some of you have heard me use this before, but use this pulpit right here as like, uh, imagine this being a, a building. And if you were standing on the other side and if you couldn't see me, if I wasn't available, well then my shadow, if you could see my shadow, that shadow would give you useful information about me. It could tell you whether I'm standing still, whether I'm moving towards you, whether I'm moving away from you, whether I'm carrying a stick or something. You know, that shadow could give you a lot of information if you can't see me. But if I walk around the corner and if I'm in full sight, and you run up and hug my shadow and oh, I'm so glad you're here. Something would be wrong with you. That shadow's only of use if I'm not here. But once I'm here, don't talk to my shadow. Don't hug my shadow. Hug me. The Sabbath was a shadow. The laws about dietary laws were shadows of New Testament things. And yet we have multitudes of Christians today. There's an entire denomination built around the seventh day Sabbath, seventh day Adventist. There's entire groups that men are so strict in their interpretation of the dietary laws, which first Timothy chapter four, verses one through four says, it's a doctrine of the devil to command people to not eat certain foods. Did you know in the Old Testament law, if you ate pork, if you ate uh, shrimp, and oysters and things like that, you were to be killed. In the New Testament, it's a doctrine of devils to do that. There's a change in those two things. If anybody ever really studied the word and used your brain for something besides a hat rack, you could see <laughs> that there is a change. What was forbidden in the Old Testament is now uh, totally done away with in the New Testament. It's a doctrine of the devils to do it. And yet we have entire denominations and large groups of people. I bet you there's people sitting right here in this auditorium that are just fuming right now because I'm stepping on your, I'm killing your sacred cows. <laughs> but I'm telling you, he's saying, why are you observing days and months and times and years? This is talking about all of the feast days and things like this. He says, I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. If you are one of those that's observing all of these rituals and doing things, Paul would say, I'm not sure that you're saved. I'm not sure that you are really changed. Why are you going back to these beggarly things? In our day and time, the reason so many Christians are legalistic is because it's been taught us from the time we got born again. The church as a whole has embraced the law, promoted the law, taught these things. And so it's understandable to a degree why we have become so legalistic and bound by all of these things, but it was never intended to be. 
It is not the way that God intended. In verse 12, brethren, I beseech you be as I am, for I am as ye are. You have not injured me at all. Paul is saying you need to be like me because the truth is you are like me in the spirit. You are free. You've got this new covenant, but you just aren't taking advantage of it. Why are you going back to these weak and beggarly things? And in verse 13, he says, you know how through infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despised not nor rejected, but... Um, but receive me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them unto me. You know, I hate to even bring this up, but it's said so often, I just need to mention this. Some people think that 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse seven, where Paul talked about his thorn in the flesh, it was sickness and specifically, they think that it was a runny uh, eyes, some kind of an Aramaic disease where his eyes watered and ran and stuff. And they, they just, I don't know, they come up with that out of the blue. And they use this verse, these verses, to try and uh, confirm that Paul had an eye disease. Because he mentions right here that he had an infirmity in the flesh at, notice it says at the first, implying it didn't last and it says that if they had been possible, they would have plucked out their own eyes and have given them to them. So they extrapolate this stuff from this and come up with Paul had this ancient runny eye disease and that's what he was talking about. First of all, this was a church of Galatia. Galatia is the area where Paul was stoned and left for dead. And I don't know if he was dead, but he was so close to being dead that the people who tried to kill him thought he was dead and left. Personally, I think he probably was raised from the dead because it says, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up. So I believe he was raised from the dead. If not, he was so close to it that he looked dead and he walked 20 miles the next day and preached in Galatia. And it is very possible that he might've had an eye problem. Amen. He may have had a black eye. He may have had a bruise. He may have had something. There's no way that you can say this was a continual thing. He said at the first, plus when it says that you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me, this doesn't mean that he necessarily had bad eyes. It's very similar to we say, you know, I'd give my right arm for you. Does that mean that your right arm's bad? It just is trying to express that you love this person so much you'd sacrifice a part of your body. That's all he's saying. This isn't some validation that Paul had some sickness that God wouldn't take away. That is not what it is. I've got a whole teaching out there entitled Paul's thorn in the flesh that'll go into that. But he was just saying that when I came and brought the gospel to you, you received this so well, you love me so much that you were willing to literally pluck out your eyes and give them to me. Where is this love now? Man, you've rejected all of the good things that I've told you and you've gone with these other people, these Judaizers who are telling you that you need to go back under the law and he's trying to draw them back into this uh, love for him and what he's teaching. And he says, where's this blessedness you spoke of? And then he says in verse 16, he says, am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Man, I've used that verse a million times <laughs> talking to somebody. You know, most people 
can't tolerate the truth. Traditions and doctrines of men are more important to them than the truth. Boy, I tell you, with Creflo and me together saying these things and just overlapping and stuff, if you've been at all of these messages, meetings, and if you leave here rejecting this, I tell you, you are just a person that you just have no commitment to the truth. I don't know how else you could, I don't know how you could receive this. I don't know how you can look at it any other way. But the traditions and doctrines of men make the word of no effect. And there's a lot of people that are just going to hold on. I talked to a woman one time and I was trying to talk to her about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And she says, I'm a Methodist and we don't believe in that. And I told her John Wesley received it. John Wesley worked in these. Oh, well, no, no, no. And anyway, she just finally came out and she says, I was born a Methodist and I'm going to die a Methodist. And I told her, I said, lady, you are dead. You don't know it. You're dead and don't know it. Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. Ryan, would you put up the uh, amplified translation of that verse? It's, it's wordy here in the uh, King James, but the amplified makes this pretty good. It says, uh, these men, the Judaizing teachers, are zealously trying to dazzle you, paying court to you, making much of you, but their purpose is not honorable or worthy or for any good. What they want to do is isolate you from us who oppose them so that they may win you over to their side and get you to court their favor. So this is what he's trying to get across is these people are coming against you and trying to isolate you, exclude you from us, separate you from your allegiance to us so that they could have you uh, uh, make an allegiance to them. And did you know, basically, this is what all legalism is about. I think that it's a multiple thing. Legalism is carnal. And you don't have to be spiritual to understand legalism. Do this and I'll kill you. A lost man can understand that. <laughs> so it appeals to your carnal person, but beyond that, I think one of the reasons ministers are so resistant towards preaching grace is because they're afraid they're gonna lose control. If I go to telling people that, hey, you don't have to come to church, God loves you whether you come to church or not. God doesn't grade you on your church attendance, but if you don't come to church, you're stupid. <laughs> because you aren't gonna be hearing these truths. You aren't gonna hear this on, out in the world, even on television. There's not very many people on television that'll tell you the truth and preach the gospel. And so you aren't gonna get this unless you're around believers. Coming to church is good for you, but it doesn't change God's heart towards you. And most preachers, if you start saying that, they're afraid that their people aren't gonna come, that they're gonna lose control. And so they say, oh, but you've got to come to church or God won't bless you. God, in a sense, is looking at your church attendance. If you don't pay your tithes, God won't bless you. The reason most ministers won't minister grace is because they think they will lose control. You can manipulate people with the law. You can tell people, if you don't do this, if you don't come to this thing, God won't bless you. You can say, if you leave this church, 
then God's gonna get you. Bad things are gonna start happening. And it's a manipulative and a control type of thing. You know what? It's, it takes grace to believe that God is gonna work in these people's lives because of the Holy Spirit in them instead of you manipulating them and controlling them. And this is what he's talking about right here. These people are zealously trying to exclude you and separate you from us so that they can gain control of you, so that you can have allegiance to them. This is really what's behind legalism. A person who's truly operating in grace, well, you know, it's like that old thing about holding a bird in your hand. If it, you, you have to open it up and if they're really yours, it'll stay. You have to set people free. And it's just like as Tom Anderson was saying this last week, since he's really been preaching grace, he's been increasing 200 members a month. You know what? You can draw more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. It's just the opposite of what people think. Man, people are hungry to hear about the goodness of God, the grace of God. But the legalist will zealously affect you trying to separate you and in verse 18, but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing and not only when I am present with you. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. If you're operating in law, in legalism, man, you haven't had Christ formed in you properly. In your spirit, you're perfect and everything, but in your mind, in your emotions, you haven't got the reality of Christ. You don't have his paradigm formed on the inside of you. He says, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice for I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Boy, this is a powerful passage right here. Again, he's made this point. Notice he says, um, tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And this goes back to what he said in the third chapter that the law gave a curse if you didn't keep all of it, not some of it, not the best you could, not do it better than somebody else. If you don't keep it perfectly, then instead of the blessing, Deuteronomy 28 verses one through 15, you get the curse, Deuteronomy 28 verses 15 through 68. For those of you who are mathematicians, there's more verses in 15 through 68 than there are in one through 14. The law brought a curse. And if you don't keep it perfectly, you come cursed. And this is what he's saying. Don't you hear the law? People who are sitting here saying, I believe we've got to keep all the commandments. We've got to do these things. You don't even have a clue what you're saying. Man, I thought that was an awesome point that Creflo made last night about esteeming the law that people who are sitting here thinking that they can keep it and promoting it, they haven't really esteemed it. They haven't put, they haven't recognized how holy and pure the law is. Nobody can keep the law. It wasn't given so you could keep. It was given to show you you can't keep it and you despair of keeping it and trying to earn favor with God and receive it as a gift. So he says, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 16 is where God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. And after, I don't know, uh, 20 something years, I'm not sure that I'd have to look it up. But after a certain period of time, they still hadn't had this promised son. And so Sarah came up with an idea and she says, maybe 
we're going to do this by my slave, by my bondwoman. You go in and have sex with her and I'll claim her child and that's the way that God's going to bring this to pass. That's listed in Genesis chapter 16. And so Abraham didn't argue with her. He went right into Hagar and he had an Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of all of the Arabs. And then 17 years later, in Genesis chapter 21, uh, God appeared unto Abraham and said, now is the time for this promised seed. And your wife, Sarah, is gonna conceive. And at that time, she was 90 years old. She was 91 years old when she gave birth. Abraham was 99 and 100 years old when she gave birth. And uh, Abraham immediately began to intercede for Ishmael because he loved Ishmael. And God said, I'll bless him too, but your promised seed is Isaac. And when Isaac was born, you can read this 21st chapter of Genesis, Isaac was persecuted by Ishmael. The slave Hagar and her son Ishmael envied Isaac. And so Ishmael began to persecute and uh, cause all kinds of problems. And finally, Sarah got so upset with it, she says, I can't stand it. You're gonna have to cast this bondwoman and her child out. They will not inherit with me. And Abraham didn't like it at all. He really was upset. But as he prayed about it, God says, you do what she said, because this son of the bondwoman will not inherit with my promised seed. And it was an allegory. It says that right here. God back then was preaching the gospel and showing, see, I, Ishmael was a work of the flesh. They were gonna help God. It looked like God wasn't able to pull this thing off. And so before Sarah passed the age where she could have children, they decided that, you know, they, I mean, excuse me, they, they went to Hagar before she could pass that age. They just had a child by Hagar and tried to help God out. Boy, we, all of us have Ishmael's in our life. And you know what the bad thing is? If you have an Ishmael, you got to feed it. You got to raise it. It'll cost you. Man, we need to wait on God. But anyway, it says right here, all of these things were an allegory. In verse, um, let's go back to verse 23. But he was, who was born of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. In other words, Isaac was supernatural. There was no way that uh, Abraham and Sarah could have a child at their age. This was a miracle. This was something that was totally a work of God, whereas Ishmael was a work of the flesh. And it says in verse 24, which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants. Ishmael was the covenant of law. Isaac was the covenant of grace. The one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Paul was talking about the Jews. Man, this was really offensive to the legalistic Jews of his day who thought that, man, the Jews were the chosen frozen and they weren't about to adopt this. For him to say that these, this is Jerusalem and it's in bondage with her children, this was very offensive. It's offensive to religious people today to think that what they are involved in, this religious system, is not really the true gospel and that they haven't been preaching this. This is super offensive to people today. 
And in verse 26, or verse, what is it? Verse 26, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Talking about all of us in this new covenant. We are members of the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23 says that you have come unto Mount Zion and unto the heavenly Jerusalem. We are all true Jews. Any person who is united with God through this new covenant, we are members of the seed of Abraham, Christ. And we are the true people of God. And in verse 27, it says, For it is written, Rejoice thou that bear it, uh, rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath a husband. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 54, verse one. And this is of course right after Isaiah 53 where it prophesied about Jesus coming by his stripes, we are healed. He was like a sheep, a lamb led to the slaughter. And in chapter 54, it starts giving you the benefits of this new covenant that now rejoice barren, Rejoice, cry aloud. You have many more children than the married wife. What this is talking about, those who couldn't produce because of your flesh, because you failed. Now through God, through this new covenant, you can produce more than the people who are trying it through the law, through the flesh and all of these things. It's talking about that we could be more productive through Christ than you could ever be on your own. And in verse uh, 28, it says, now we brethren as Isaac was are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. That's talking about Ishmael persecuted Isaac. And it's saying it's the same thing. Those that are after the law persecute those who are of grace today. And you know, let me, I'm going to get on this tonight, but let me just jump down to chapter five, verse 11. He says, and I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. And this isn't actually just about circumcision. Circumcision was just the main uh, doctrine or the main uh, seal or act of the covenant. It's talking about if I preach legalism, if I preach law, then the offense of the cross is ceased. Did you know if you are preaching legalism, you will not be persecuted for that. But you go to preaching grace, and I guarantee you, you will be persecuted. Those that are of Ishmael, those that are of the law, will always be upset with those that are of grace. And you might as well get used to it. You know, when I first started preaching the grace of God, I thought, man, this is awesome. I thought everybody was going to be excited about this. I was excited and I expected to have great results. And you know what? It doesn't always go that way. You shouldn't be surprised. I think part of it is the people who have been trying to keep the law, they take great pride in what they've done. And they think that because I've done this, God has got to bless me and they start getting really satisfied with themselves. And when you come along and preach grace, you're telling them that all of your goodness doesn't give you a leg up with God. It doesn't give you any greater access to God. And 
for the legalist, that is just really discouraging. You mean that all of this effort I've put into it, I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do, and I don't have any extra pull with God? That is very offensive to the natural person. But I'm telling you, it's the only way any of us can ever relate to God. None of us deserve relationship with God. And the law is all about your performance, trying to get you to earn something, to show you that it's such a huge standard you can never match up to it. You know, if somebody walked into this room with a gun and says, I'm gonna kill every person in here, and here's the only thing that can exempt you is if you could jump and touch the ceiling. You know, if Michael Jordan was in here, he could probably jump higher than most people. Some of you are couch potatoes. You couldn't even get off the floor. <laughs> but if the minimum standard is you gotta jump and touch this ceiling, we're all gonna die, amen? Nobody can do that. And this is what God did. There were people thinking, God, I know you're gonna spare me because I'm such a good person. And God says, you're deceived. And to show us how deceived we were, he just raised the standard so high that nobody can ever obtain to it. That was the purpose of the law, was to shut you up and to make you throw yourself on him and just beg for mercy. And then you beg for mercy, he says, fine, I'll exempt you through Jesus. Praise God, tonight I'll try and get into Galatians chapter five. Galatians chapter five, some of the strongest scriptures in the Bible and I guarantee you, if uh, you haven't accepted this yet and embraced it, this will either make you mad or glad tonight. <laughs> Galatians chapter five is radical. So I'll be dealing with that tonight. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.